Part third of Nostromo by Joseph Conrad. The Lighthouse, Chapter 3. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part third, The Lighthouse, Chapter 3. Directly they were alone, the Colonel's severe official manner changed. He rose and approached the doctor. His eyes shone with rapacity and hope. He became confidential. The silver might have been indeed put on board the lighter, but it was not conceivable that it should have been taken out to sea. The doctor, watching every word, nodded slightly, smoking with apparent relish the cigar which Satio had offered him as a sign of his friendly intentions. The doctor's manner of cold detachment from the rest of the Europeans led Satio on, till from conjecture to conjecture, he arrived at hinting that, in his opinion, this was a put-up job on the part of Charles Gould in order to get hold of that immense treasure all to himself. The doctor, observant and self-possessed, muttered, He is very capable of that. Here Captain Mitchell exclaimed with amazement, amusement and indignation, You said that of Charles Gould? Disgust and even some suspicion crept into his tone, for to him too, as to other Europeans, there appeared to be something dubious about the doctor's personality. "'What on earth made you say that to this watch-stealing scoundrel?' he asked. "'What's the object of an infernal lie of that sort? That confounded pickpocket was quite capable of believing you!' He snorted. For a time the doctor remained silent in the dark. Yes, that is exactly what I did say, he uttered at last, in a tone which would have made it clear enough to a third party that the pause was not of a reluctant, but of a reflective character. Captain Mitchell thought that he had never heard anything so brazenly impudent in his life. Well, well, he muttered to himself, but he had not the heart to voice his thoughts. They were swept away by others full of astonishment and regret. A heavy sense of discomfiture crushed him. The loss of the silver, the death of Nostromo, which was really quite a blow to his sensibilities, because he had become attached to his capitas as people get attached to their inferiors from love of ease and almost unconscious gratitude. And when he thought of Decoud being drowned, too, his sensibility was almost overcome by this miserable end. What a heavy blow for that poor young woman! Captain Mitchell did not belong to the species of crabbed old bachelors. On the contrary, he liked to see young men paying attentions to young women. It seemed to him a natural and proper thing, proper especially. As to sailors, it was different. It was not their place to marry, he maintained. But it was on moral grounds as a matter of self-denial, for, he explained, life on board ship is not fit for a woman, even at best. And if you leave her on shore, first of all, it is not fair and next she either suffers from it or doesn't care a bit, which in both cases is bad. He couldn't have told you what upset him most, Charles Gould's immense material loss, the death of Nostromo, which was a heavy loss to himself, or the idea of that beautiful and accomplished young woman being plunged into mourning. Yes, the doctor, who had been apparently reflecting, began again. He believed me right enough. I thought he would have hugged me. See, si, see, si, he said. He will write to that partner of his, the rich Americano in San Francisco, that it is all lost. Why not? There is enough to share with many people. But this is perfectly imbecile, cried Captain Mitchell. The doctor remarked that Satillo was imbecile, and that his imbecility was ingenious enough to lead him completely astray. He had helped him only but a little way. 
I mentioned, the doctor said, in a sort of casual way, that treasure is generally buried in the earth rather than set afloat upon the sea. At this, my Satio slapped his forehead. Por Dios, yes, he said. They must have buried it on the shores of this harbour somewhere before they sailed out. Heavens and earth, muttered Captain Mitchell. I should not have believed that anybody could be ass enough. He paused, then went on mournfully. But what's the good of all this? It would have been a clever enough lie if the lighter had been still afloat. It would have kept that inconceivable idiot perhaps from sending out the steamer to cruise in the gulf. That was the danger that worried me no end. Captain Mitchell sighed profoundly. I had an object, the doctor pronounced slowly. Had you? muttered Captain Mitchell. Well, that's lucky, or else I would have thought that you went on fooling him for the fun of the thing, and perhaps that was your object. Well, I must say, I personally wouldn't condescend to that sort of thing. It is not to my taste. No, no. Blackening a friend's character is not my idea of fun, if it were to fool the greatest blackguard on earth. Had it not been for Captain Mitchell's depression, caused by the fatal news, his disgust of Dr. Monningham would have taken a more outspoken shape, but he thought to himself that now it really did not matter what that man, whom he had never liked, would say and do. I wonder, he grumbled, why they have shut us up together, or why Sir Tio should have shut you up at all, since it seems to me you have been fairly chummy up there. Yes, I wonder, said the doctor grimly. Captain Mitchell's heart was so heavy that he would have preferred for the time being a complete solitude to the best of company. But any company would have been preferable to the doctors, at whom he had always looked askance as a sort of beachcomber of superior intelligence partly reclaimed from his abased state. That feeling led him to ask, what has that ruffian done with the other two? The chief engineer he would have let go in any case, said the doctor. He wouldn't like to have a quarrel with the railway upon his hands. Not just yet, at any rate. I don't think, Captain Mitchell, that you understand exactly what Satio's position is. I don't see why I should bother my head about it, snarled Captain Mitchell. No, assented the doctor with the same grim composure. I don't see why you should. It wouldn't help a single human being in the world if you thought ever so hard upon any subject whatsoever. No, said Captain Mitchell simply and with evident depression. A man locked up in a confounded dark hole is not much use to anybody. As to old Viola, the doctor continued, as though he had not heard, Satio released him for the same reason he is presently going to release you. Eh? What? exclaimed Captain Mitchell, staring like an owl in the darkness. What is there in common between me and old Viola? More likely because the old chap has no watch and chain for the pickpocket to steal. And I tell you what, Dr. Monigham, he went on with rising choler, he will find it more difficult than he thinks to get rid of me. He will burn his fingers over that job yet, I can tell you. To begin with, I won't go without my watch, and as to the rest, we shall see. I dare say it is no great matter for you to be locked up, but Joe Mitchell is a different kind of man, sir. I don't mean to submit tamely to insult and robbery. I am a public character, sir. And then Captain Mitchell became aware that the bars of the opening had become visible, a black grating upon a square of grey. The coming of the day silenced Captain Mitchell as if by the reflection that now, in all the future days, he would be deprived of the invaluable services of his capitas. He leaned against the wall with his arms folded on his breast, and the doctor walked up and down the whole length of the place with his peculiar hobbling gait as if slinking about on damaged feet. 
At the end furthest from the grating, he would be lost altogether in the darkness. Only the slight limping shuffle could be heard. There was an air of moody detachment in that painful prowl kept up without a pause. When the door of the prison was suddenly flung open and his name shouted out, he showed no surprise. He swerved sharply in his walk and passed out at once, as though much depended upon his speed. But Captain Mitchell remained for some time with his shoulders against the wall, quite undecided in the bitterness of his spirit whether it wouldn't be better to refuse to stir a limb in the way of protest. He had half a mind to get himself carried out, but after the officer at the door had shouted three or four times in tones of remonstrance and surprise, he condescended to walk out. Sir Tio's manner had changed. The colonel's off-hand civility was slightly irresolute, as though he were in doubt if civility were the proper course in this case. He observed Captain Mitchell attentively before he spoke from the big armchair behind the table in a condescending voice. I have concluded not to detain you, Signor Mitchell. I am of a forgiving disposition. I make allowances. Let this be a lesson to you, however. The peculiar dawn of Salaco, which seemed to break away from the westward and creep back into the shade of the mountains, mingled with the reddish light of the candles. Captain Mitchell, in sign of contempt and indifference, let his eyes roam all over the room, and he gave a hard stare to the doctor, perched already on the casement of one of the windows, with his eyelids lowered, careless and thoughtful, or perhaps ashamed. Sir Tio, ensconced in the vast armchair, remarked, I should have thought that the feelings of a caballero would have dictated to you an appropriate reply. He waited for it, but Captain Mitchell, remaining mute, more from extreme resentment than from reasoned intention, Sir Tio hesitated, glanced towards the doctor, who looked up and nodded, then went on with a slight effort. Here, Signor Mitchell, is your watch. Learn how hasty and unjust has been your judgment of my patriotic soldiers. Lying back in his seat, he extended his arm over the table and pushed the watch away slightly. Captain Mitchell walked up with undisguised eagerness, put it to his ear, then slipped it into his pocket coolly. Satio seemed to overcome an immense reluctance. Again he looked aside at the doctor, who stared at him unwinkingly. But as Captain Mitchell was turning away, without as much as a nod or a glance, he hastened to say, You may go and wait downstairs for the senior doctor, who I am going to liberate too. You foreigners are insignificant to my mind. He forced a slight discordant laugh out of himself, while Captain Mitchell, for the first time, looked at him with some interest. The law shall take note later on of your transgressions, Sotio hurried on, but as for me, you can live free, unguarded, unobserved. Do you hear, Signor Mitchell? You may depart to your affairs. You are beneath my notice. My attention is claimed by matters of the very highest importance. Captain Mitchell was very nearly provoked to an answer. It displeased him to be liberated insultingly, but want of sleep, prolonged anxieties, a profound disappointment with the fatal ending of the silver-saving business weighed upon his spirits. It was as much as he could do to conceal his uneasiness, not about himself, perhaps, but about things in general. It occurred to him distinctly that something underhand was going on. As he went out, he ignored the doctor pointedly. A brute, said Sotillo as the door shut. 
Dr. Monaghan slipped off the window sill and, thrusting his hand into the pockets of the long, grey dust coat he was wearing, made a few steps into the room. Sotillo got up too and, putting himself in the way, examined him from head to foot. So your countrymen do not confide in you very much, Signor Doctor. They do not love you, eh? Why is that, I wonder? The doctor, lifting his head, answered by a long, lifeless stare and the words, Perhaps because I have lived too long in Costaguana. Sotillo had a gleam of white teeth under the black moustache. Aha, but you love yourself, he said encouragingly. If you leave them alone, the doctor said, looking with the same lifeless stare at Sotillo's handsome face, they will betray themselves very soon. Meantime, I may try to make Don Carlos speak. Ah, Senor Doctor, said Sotillo, wagging his head. You are a man of quick intelligence. We were made to understand each other. He turned away. He could bear no longer that expressionless and motionless stare, which seemed to have a sort of impenetrable emptiness, like the black depth of an abyss. Even in a man utterly devoid of moral sense, there remains an appreciation of rascality which, being conventional, is perfectly clear. Sotillo thought that Dr. Monaghan, so different from all Europeans, was ready to sell his countryman and Charles Gould, his employer, for some share of the San Tomé silver. Sotillo did not despise him for that. The colonel's want of moral sense was of a profound and innocent character. It bordered upon stupidity, moral stupidity. Nothing that served his ends could appear to him really reprehensible. Nevertheless, he despised Dr. Monaghan. He had for him an immense and satisfactory contempt. He despised him with all his heart, because he did not mean to let the doctor have any reward at all. He despised him not as a man without faith and honour, but as a fool. Dr. Monaghan's insight into his character had deceived Sotillo completely. Therefore he thought the doctor a fool. Since his arrival in Sulaco, the colonel's ideas had undergone some modification. He no longer wished for a political career in Montero's administration. He had always doubted the safety of that course. Since he had learned from the chief engineer that at daylight most likely he would be confronted by Pedro Montero, his misgivings on that point had considerably increased. The guerrillero, brother of the general, the Pedrito of popular speech, had a reputation of his own. He wasn't safe to deal with. Sotillo had vaguely planned seizing not only the treasure but the town itself, and then negotiating at leisure. But in the face of facts learned from the chief engineer, who had frankly disclosed to him the whole situation, his audacity, never of a very dashing kind, had been replaced by a most cautious hesitation. An army, an army crossed the mountains under Pedrito already, he had repeated, unable to hide his consternation. If it had not been that I am given the news by a man of your position, I would never have believed it. Astonishing. An armed force, corrected the engineer suavely. His aim was attained. It was to keep Sulaco clear of any armed occupation for a few hours longer, to let those whom fear imperiled leave the town. In the general dismay, there were families hopeful enough to fly upon the road toward Los Hatos, which was left open by the withdrawal of the armed rabble under Senores Fuentes and Gamacho to Rinson, with their enthusiastic welcome for Pedro Montero. 
It was a hasty and risky exodus, and it was said that Hernandez, occupying with his band the woods about Los Hatos, was receiving the fugitives. That a good many people he knew were contemplating such a flight had been well known to the chief engineer. Father Corbelan's efforts in the cause of that most pious robber had not been altogether fruitless. The political chief of Salaco had yielded at the last moment to the urgent entreaties of the priest, had signed a provisional nomination appointing Hernandez a general and calling upon him officially in this new capacity to preserve order in the town. The fact is that the political chief, seeing the situation desperate, did not care what he signed. It was the last official document he signed before he left the palace of the Intendencia for the refuge of the OSN company's office. But even had he meant his act to be effective, it was already too late. The riot which he feared and expected broke out in less than an hour after Father Corbelan had left him. Indeed, Father Corbelan, who had appointed a meeting with Nostromo in the Dominican convent where he had his residence in one of the cells, never managed to reach the place. From the Intendencia he had gone straight on to the Avianos's house to tell his brother-in-law, and though he stayed there no more than half an hour, he had found himself cut off from his ascetic abode. Nostromo, after waiting there for some time, watching uneasily the increasing uproar in the street, had made his way to the offices of the poor veneer and stayed there till daylight, as Decoud had mentioned in the letter to his sister. Thus the Capataz, instead of riding towards the Los Hatos woods as bearer of Hernandez's nomination, had remained in town to save the life of the president dictator, to assist in repressing the outbreak of the mob, and at last to sail out with the silver of the mine. But Father Corbelan, escaping to Hernandez, had the document in his pocket, a piece of official writing turning a bandit into a general in a memorable last official act of the Ribierist party whose watchwords were honesty, peace and progress. Probably neither the priest nor the bandit saw the irony of it. Father Corbelan must have found messengers to send into the town, for early on the second day of the disturbances there were rumours of Hernandez being on the road to Los Hatos, ready to receive those who would put themselves under his protection. A strange-looking horseman, elderly and audacious, had appeared in the town, riding slowly while his eyes examined the fronts of the houses, as though he had never seen such high buildings before. Before the cathedral he had dismounted, and, kneeling in the middle of the plaza, his bridle over his arm and his hat lying in front of him on the ground, had bowed his head, crossing himself and beating his breast for some little time. Remounting his horse with a fearless but not unfriendly look round the little gathering formed about his public devotions, he had asked for the Casa Avellanos. A score of hands were extended in answer, with fingers pointing up the Calais de la Constitution. The horseman had gone on with only a glance of casual curiosity upwards to the windows of the Amarilla Club at the corner. His stentorian voice shouted periodically in the empty street, which is the Casa Avellanos? till an answer came from the scared porter and he disappeared under the gate. The letter he was bringing, written by Father Corbelan with a pencil by the campfire of Hernandez, was addressed to Don Jose, of whose critical state the priest was not aware. Antonia read it and, after consulting Charles Gould, sent it on for the information of the gentleman garrisoning the Amarilla Club. For herself, her mind was made up. She would rejoin her uncle. She would entrust the last day, the last hours perhaps, of her father's life to the keeping of the bandit, 
whose existence was a protest against the irresponsible tyranny of all parties alike, against the moral darkness of the land. The gloom of Los Hatos woods was preferable, a life of hardship in the train of a robber band less debasing. Antonia embraced with all her soul her uncle's obstinate defiance of misfortune. It was grounded in the belief in the man whom she loved. In his message, the vicar-general answered upon his head for Hernandez's fidelity. As to his power, he pointed out that he had remained unsubdued for so many years. In that letter, Decoud's idea of the new Occidental state, whose flourishing and stable condition is a matter of common knowledge now, was for the first time made public and used as an argument. Hernandez, ex-bandit and the last general of Ribierist creation, was confident of being able to hold the tract of country between the woods of Los Hatos and the coast range till that devoted patriot Don Martin Decoud could bring General Barrios back to Sulaco for the reconquest of the town. Heaven itself wills it. Providence is on our side, wrote Father Coblum. There was no time to reflect upon or to controvert his statement, and if the discussion started upon the reading of that letter in the Amarilla Club was violent, it was also short-lived. In the general bewilderment of the collapse, some jumped at the idea with joyful astonishment, as upon the amazing discovery of a new hope. Others became fascinated by the prospect of immediate personal safety for their women and children. The majority caught at it as a drowning man catches at a straw. Father Corbelin was unexpectedly offering them a refuge from Pedrito Montero with his llanos allied to Senores Fuentes and Gamacho with their armed rabble. All the latter part of the afternoon, an animated discussion went on in the big rooms of the Amarilla Club. Even those members posted at the windows with rifles and carbines to guard the end of the street in case of an offensive return of the populace shouted their opinions and arguments over their shoulders. As dusk fell, Don Juste Lopez, inviting those caballeros who were of his way of thinking to follow him, withdrew into the corridor where, at a little table in the light of two candles, he busied himself in composing an address, or rather a solemn declaration, to be presented to Pedrito Montero by a deputation of such members of assembly as had elected to remain in town. His idea was to propitiate him in order to save the form, at least, of parliamentary institutions. Seated before a blank piece of paper, a goose-quill pen in his hand, and surged upon from all sides, he turned to the right and to the left, repeating with solemn insistence, Caballeros, a moment of silence, a moment of silence. We ought to make it clear that we bow in all good faith to the accomplished facts. The utterance of that phrase seemed to give him a melancholy satisfaction. The hubbub of voices round him was growing strained and hoarse. In the sudden pauses, the excited grimacing of the faces would sink all at once into the stillness of profound dejection. Meantime, the exodus had begun. Caretas full of ladies and children rolled swaying across the plaza, with men walking or riding by their side. Mounted parties followed on mules and horses. The poorest were setting out on foot, men and women carrying bundles, clasping babies in their arms, leading old people, dragging along the bigger children. When Charles Gould, after leaving the doctor and the engineer at the Casa Viola, entered the town by the harbour gate, all those that had meant to go were gone, and the others had barricaded themselves in their houses. 
In the whole dark street there was only one spot of flickering lights and moving figures, where the Senor Administrador recognised his wife's carriage waiting at the door of the Avellanos' house. He rode up almost unnoticed, and looked on without a word while some of his own servants came out of the gate carrying Don José Avellanos, who, with closed eyes and motionless features, appeared perfectly lifeless. His wife and Antonia walked on each side of the improvised stretcher, which was put at once into the carriage. The two women embraced, while from the other side of the landau, Father Corbelan's emissary, with his ragged beard all streaked with grey and high bronzed cheekbones, stared, sitting upright in the saddle. Then Antonia, dry-eyed, got in by the side of the stretcher, and after making the sign of the cross rapidly, lowered a thick veil upon her face. The servants and the three or four neighbours who had come to assist stood back, uncovering their heads. On the box, Ignacio, resigned now to driving all night and to having perhaps his throat cut before daylight, looked back surlily over his shoulder. "'Drive carefully,' cried Mrs Gould in a tremulous voice. "'See carefully, see niña,' he mumbled, chewing his lips, his round leathery cheeks quivering, and the lander rolled slowly out of the light. "'I will see them as far as the ford,' said Charles Gould to his wife. She stood on the edge of the sidewalk with her hands clasped lightly and nodded to him as he followed after the carriage. And now the windows of the Amarillo Club were dark. The last spark of resistance had died out. Turning his head at the corner, Charles Gould saw his wife crossing over to their own gate in the lighted patch of the street. One of their neighbours, a well-known merchant and landowner of the province, followed at her elbow, talking with great gestures. As she passed in, all the lights went out in the street, which remained dark and empty from end to end. The houses of the vast plaza were lost in the night. High up, like a star, there was a small gleam in one of the towers of the cathedral, and the equestrian statue gleamed pale against the black trees of the Alameda, like a ghost of royalty haunting the scenes of revolution. The rare prowlers they met ranged themselves against the wall. Beyond the last houses the carriage rolled noiselessly on the soft cushion of dust, and with a greater obscurity a feeling of freshness seemed to fall from the foliage of the trees bordering the country road. The emissary from Hernandez's camp pushed his horse close to Charles Gould. Caballero, he said in an interested voice, you are he whom they call the king of Sulaco, the master of the mine? Is it not so? Yes, I am the master of the mine, answered Charles Gould. The man cantered for a time in silence, then said, I have a brother, a sereno, in your service in the San Tome Valley. You have proved yourself a just man. There has been no wrong done to anyone since you called upon the people to work in the mountains. My brother says that no official of the government, no oppressor of the campo, has been seen on your side of the stream. Your own officials do not oppress the people in the gorge. Doubtless they are afraid of your severity. You are a just man and a powerful one, he added. He spoke in an abrupt, independent tone, but evidently he was communicative with a purpose. He told Charles Gould that he had been a ranchero in one of the lower valleys far south, a neighbour of Hernandez in the old days and godfather to his eldest boy, one of those who joined him in his resistance to the recruiting raid which was the beginning of all their misfortunes. 
It was he that, when his compadre had been carried off, had buried his wife and children, murdered by the soldiers. "'Si, senor,' he muttered hoarsely. "'I and two or three others, the lucky ones left at liberty, "'buried them all in one grave near the ashes of their ranch, "'under the tree that had shaded its roof.' It was to him, too, that Hernandez came after he had deserted three years afterwards. He had still his uniform on, with the sergeant's stripes on the sleeve, and the blood of his colonel upon his hands and breast. Three troopers followed him, of those who had started in pursuit, but had ridden on for liberty. And he told Charles Gould how he and a few friends, seeing those soldiers, lay in ambush behind some rocks, ready to pull the triggers on them, when he recognised his compadre and jumped up from cover, shouting his name, because he knew that Hernandez could not have been coming back on an errand of injustice and oppression. Those three soldiers, together with the party who lay behind the rocks, had formed the nucleus of the famous band, and he, the narrator, had been the favourite lieutenant of Hernandez for many, many years. He mentioned proudly that the officials had put a price upon his head too, but did not prevent it getting sprinkled with grey upon his shoulders. And now he had lived long enough to see his compadre made a general. He had a burst of muffled laughter. And now from robbers we have become soldiers. But look, caballero, at those who made us soldiers and him a general. Look at these people. Ignacio shouted. The light of the carriage lamps running along the nopole hedges that crowned the bank on each side flashed upon the scared faces of people standing aside in the road, sunk deep like an English country lane into the soft soil of the campo. They cowered, their eyes glistened very big for a second, and then the light, running on, fell upon the half-denuded roots of a big tree on another stretch of nopole hedge, caught up another bunch of faces glaring back apprehensively. Three women, of whom one was carrying a child, and a couple of men in civilian dress, one armed with a sabre and another with a gun, were grouped about a donkey carrying two bundles tied up in blankets. Further on, Ignacio shouted again to pass a carreta, a long wooden box on two high wheels with the door at the back swinging open. Some ladies in it must have recognised the white mules because they screamed out, Is it you, Dona Amelia? At the turn of the road, the glare of a big fire filled the short stretch vaulted over by the branches meeting overhead. Near the ford of a shallow stream, a roadside rancho of woven rushes and a roof of grass had been set on fire by accident, and the flames, roaring viciously, lit up an open space blocked with horses, mules, and a distracted shouting crowd of people. When Ignacio pulled up, several ladies on foot assailed the carriage, begging Antonia for a seat. To their clamour, she answered by pointing silently to her father. "'I must leave you here,' said Charles Gould in the uproar. The flames leapt up sky-high, and in the recoil from the scorching heat across the road, the stream of fugitives pressed against the carriage. A middle-aged lady, dressed in black silk, but with a coarse mantle over her head and a rough branch for a stick in her hand, staggered against the front wheel. Two young girls, frightened and silent, were clinging to her arms.' Charles Gould knew her very well. Misericordia, we are getting terribly bruised in this crowd, she exclaimed, smiling up courageously to him. We have started on foot. All our servants ran away yesterday to join the Democrats. We are going to put ourselves under the protection of Father Corbelin, of your sainted uncle, Antonia. He has wrought a miracle in the heart of a most merciless robber. A miracle! 
She raised her voice gradually up to a scream as she was borne along by the pressure of people getting out of the way of some carts coming up out of the ford at a gallop with loud yells and cracking of whips. Great masses of sparks mingled with black smoke flew over the road. The bamboos of the walls detonated in the fire with the sound of an irregular fusillade. And then the bright blaze sank suddenly, leaving only a red dusk crowded with aimless dark shadows drifting in contrary directions. The noise of voices seemed to die away with the flame, and the tumult of heads, arms, quarrelling and imprecations passed on fleeing into the darkness. I must leave you now, repeated Charles Gould to Antonia. She turned her head slowly and uncovered her face. The emissary and compadre of Hernandez spurred his horse close up. Has not the master of the mine any message to send to Hernandez, the master of the campo? The truth of the comparison struck Giles Gould heavily. In his determined purpose he held the mine, and the indomitable bandit held the campo by the same precarious tenure. They were equals before the lawlessness of the land. It was impossible to disentangle one's activity from its debasing contacts. A close-meshed net of crime and corruption lay upon the whole country. An immense and weary discouragement sealed his lips for a time. You are a just man, urged the emissary of Hernandez. Look at those people who made my compadre a general and have turned us all into soldiers. Look at those oligarchs fleeing for life with only the clothes on their backs. My compadre does not think of that, but our followers may be wondering greatly, and I would speak for them to you. Listen, senor, for many months now the campo has been our own. We need ask no man for anything. But soldiers must have their pay to live honestly when the wars are over. It is believed that your soul is so just that a prayer from you would cure the sickness of every beast like the orison of the upright judge. Let me have some words from your lips that would act like a charm upon the doubt of our partida, where all are men. Do you hear what he says, Charles Gould said in English to Antonia. Forgive us our misery, she exclaimed hurriedly. It is your character that is the inexhaustible treasure which must save us all yet. Your character, Carlos, not your wealth. I entreat you to give this man your word that you will accept any arrangement my uncle may make with their chief. One word. He will want no more. On the side of the roadside hut there remained nothing but an enormous heap of embers, throwing afar a darkening red glow, in which Antonia's face appeared deeply flushed with excitement. Charles Gould, with only a short hesitation, pronounced the required pledge. He was like a man who had ventured on a precipitous path with no room to turn, where the only chance of safety is to press forward. At that moment, he understood it thoroughly as he looked down at poor Don Jose, stretched out, hardly breathing, by the side of the erect Antonia, vanquished in a lifelong struggle with the powers of moral darkness, whose stagnant depths breed monstrous crimes and monstrous illusions. In a few words, the emissary from Hernandez expressed his complete satisfaction. Stoically, Antonia lowered her veil, resisting the longing to inquire about Decoud's escape. But Ignacio leered morosely over his shoulder. Take a good look at the mules, mi amo, he grumbled. You shall never see them again. End of part third, The Lighthouse, chapter three.